How we doing? All right, my name is Ernie. I'm the pastor at Mercy Hill Church. And uh, yeah, I am not a chef. Let me start with that. And Timmy said, best chef in Louisiana. That's, that's not true. I do, I do love to cook. I love to cook for mass groups of people. We will not have food for 40,000, but we will have food for 200. It will not be the pot of gumbo that just keeps giving and giving and giving. It's just, there's going to be, there's going to be a limited amount there, but it's going to be incredible. We hope we see all of you out there. I, I love a couple of things. I love college. You know, I love college when I was in it. I love sports. I love game day. It's really exciting for me to be on campus tomorrow on game days or Saturday. If I'm there, game day's not going to be there tomorrow. Tomorrow's Friday, dummy. All right. Game day's on Saturday. All right. So we're going to be cooking gumbo on Saturday. What would you say? Okay. Take it easy. All right. Well, anyways. But anyways, I, I love college. And one of the things that I loved about being in college uh, was traveling. And in fact, I remember when I really got excited about it is uh, I got, took this humongous trip of my friends. In fact, two of my, two of my best friends, uh, their name was Jason and Critter, all right? Yes, his name is Critter. He's from Louisiana, all right? And he does like chasing around little critters a lot, a lot, okay? And we took a trip through Europe where we walked around Europe for two and a half months, and we did it each on 2,500 bucks, all right? And I know inflation's gone up a lot as of recently, and this was 15 years ago, but we were still doing it pretty cheaply. Like, we were vagabonds. Like, we were sleeping in train stations. We had a tent that we just, like, slept in a schoolyard one morning. I woke up, and a Swedish woman staring at me with all these kindergartners were around. She tells me, you can't do that. I said, we just did. And then, uh, and I was like, we got to get out of here, all right? But we had lots of stuff like that. But the trip didn't start off very good. You know, the trip started off with, me, my friend Chris, and Jason, and we're friends, but we all have something in common. Like, we love to be in charge. Like, we love to be in control, and we lead very differently, and we all think our idea is the best way. And so if you can imagine, the first city we went to was Berlin, and I'm sitting there, and I have the map, and he has the little guide thing, you know, with the little guidebook, little Planet Blue or whatever it was called, and then Jason has nothing. You know, and, and this is before there was like internet and cell phones like everywhere. You used to have to go to like internet cafes. You probably don't even know what those are anymore, but they were like all over the place. And you try to find one of those. But we all had the same idea getting off the train in Berlin. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want to do what you want to do because what you want to do is really stupid. And it's going to take really long. And so I need to make sure that I'm in charge the second we get off this train. That's what I thought. And that's what Chris thought, or Critter, and that's what Jason thought. We all thought that. And so you can imagine the second we got off the train, like, we are yelling at one another. We fight for, like, four hours. We go three blocks in four hours, y'all. That's how far we got away from the train, and we're screaming at each other in English, and all these Germans are just laughing at us. Finally that night, we got three blocks. We just go to the McDonald's. It's right there because they're everywhere. We sit down, we have a Royale with cheese, because that's what they got over there. And we're like, all right, we got to have a system. And so we broke it up so that we're all going to be like in charge of certain cities. And so one of the cities I was in charge of was Rome. In fact, it was the first one I was in charge of. And I'm like, I'm going to show these guys why I should be the leader right here. All right. I found this sweet hostel called the Yellow, Hot the Yellow Hotel. And we get off the train. It's two blocks from the train. It's right next to like downtown area where all the cool stuff is. We walk in there. It's like this totally cool vibe. There's hot chicks everywhere. We're like, they're all Italian. 
all right? We're all falling in love. This is amazing. Like, what are we doing here? This is incredible. That's what we're thinking at this moment. And so I go, and they're like, Ernie, this rocks. You killed it. I'm like, well, check this out, guys. I got us a room. We're not staying in a dorm room. I got us a room with three beds for 20 euro a night. And they're like, that's crazy. And I like, in this place, like, I know this place. And so I go walk up to the lady and she's like, says something in Italian. And I'm like, you know, and then, and as I go, I go, okay, we're staying in a room. My name's Ernie. And she just gets on the computer. And then she starts doing that confused look as she keeps looking. She's like, B-O-N-N. Oh, I? Yeah, like, yeah, B-O in it, okay. And she's like, you're not in here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I have my print up right here, and I pull it up, and it says yellow house on it instead of yellow hotel. And she's like, wrong place. And I'm like, where's that? She's like, oh, it's 40 minutes outside of town. So I went from being the hero immediately to like the biggest dummy in the entire planet being heckled by my friends. There was like junkyard dogs everywhere. This lady was giving us $2 wine. We're like, you're creeping me out. You know, it was, it was still fun, but definitely different experience than we thought we were going to have. Uh, but, you know, did, I did that trip, and we did lots of stuff. We did the running of the bulls. We ran around. It was great. It was, it was awesome. And, and what came out of that trip is I got this picture for what I wanted my life to be. And it was a picture of, like, I know what I want to do. I'm going to buy a van, and I'm going to travel everywhere all the time. And whenever I run out of money— I'm just going to work in that place. So I have enough money to get to the next place. And that's what I'm going to do for my 20s. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to do any of that. So for years, I was like my sophomore year of college. I was like, this is what I'm doing. And I'd travel. We'd go. We did the West Coast and an S10 because we thought it would be funny that there's four of us in like a little S10, you know, thing. We're sleeping in the back of the truck. We thought it was amazing. I was like, this is what my life's going to be. And that's the picture I had for my life. Well, guess what happened? Guess what happened to that picture? Uh, two months before I graduate, I run into an old friend, Laura, and she's going to be a missionary in China. And I'm like, perfect. We can hang out. I broke up with my girlfriend. I'm getting ready to go to this thing. We can be friends. It'll be awesome. You're going to China. I'm staying here. And then, bam, this happens. Where'd it go? I'm married. Go to the picture. All right? You messed up the joke. All right? I told you. All right? This is it right here. This is my wife. These are my kids. And this is the picture that God's given us. God's given me. All right? And look, and I'm going to tell you something right now. I believe this. I believe that man makes their plans, but God establishes their steps. And I knew that I was following the Lord, and what God had for me was a better picture than I ever had for myself. You know what? And I think it's even harder for you guys to see it because there's so much compelling pictures out there of what life should be. This is not a sermon about marriage. Okay, we can take that down real quick, okay? This is not a, a sermon that says, if you get married, all your dreams come true. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I had a picture for what my life would be and God had a different one. And I would not trade that picture for any Instagram picture of any mountain, of any like campsite, of any van in front of some dumb river, all right, for, for anything whatsoever. That God had a picture for my life that was better than the picture I had for my own. And I'm willing to believe right now that as I sit in front of a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds, that you're beginning to develop a picture for your life. And I want you to understand, I want you to not just let God have a, like an opinion in that picture for your life, but have dominion over that picture in your life. Because I believe the picture that he has for every single one of you is better than you could ever imagine. In fact, we're going to look at a story in Luke 24. Turn to Luke 24. 
uh, if you will. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one below your seats. If you, and, and if you don't own a Bible, then that's our gift to you. Please take it. It's yours. We'd love for you to have it. Write in it. Underline it. Take notes. It's the Word of God. We teach from it, not because we think it's a math book, but because we think it's the Word of God speaking to us, and it's how God communicates to us. It, one of the ways God communicates is through, is through the Word. But as we look at Luke 24, we're going to start in verse 13. And I think when we look at this picture right here, you're going to see a group of guys that had a picture for the future of their life, and it's completely shattered. But God is trying to show them that he had a better picture for them all along the way. Okay, so let's jump into verse 13 right off the bat. He says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, it kind of feels like we're jumping into the middle of the story, and we are. Let's just pull back. I want to park the bus here on these couple of verses to give us some context. What's happened in Luke 24 by now is that Jesus has died. It's three days after he has died and he has risen from the dead and his disciples are walking away dejected from Jerusalem to a near town called Emmaus, okay? And now I'm really gonna take, well, I'm just gonna take a little thing. I'm gonna talk a long time about it. Are you ready? You say at number seven, I think Luke put that number there on purpose. And this is why. Okay, because if you turn on the History Channel, which I don't know if any of you ever watched that, they don't, it's now all about aliens and whatever, but if you turn it on around Easter, they're gonna start having all these speculations and all these stories about who Jesus is, and they're gonna bring these weird guys in and talk about maybe it was connected to aliens and all this random stuff, all right? But even worse, if you have to take a religion one-on-one class like I did at university, you're gonna hear a teacher get up there that doesn't follow the religion that they're teaching about, doesn't care about the religion. In fact, they're an anthropologist. They think about humanity, and they're going to try to give you a reason for what happened with Jesus. And what they will not tell you, which is the truth that I'm going to tell you tonight, is they cannot dispel that Jesus existed. There are plenty of historical documents, both secular and biblical, that lets us know there was a guy named Jesus that did a lot of crazy things, and then he was killed by Pontius Pilate and buried. And then, his, his, and then his followers said he had raised from the dead and we can't go visit his grave. What they will talk about, because they can't dispute that, you'd have to be a terrible historian to dispute that fact right there. That is historical fact. We have as much evidence for that is that, that, is that as, as much evidence for that as George Washington crossing, what was the name of that river? The Nepon? Thank you. That one. All right. <laughs> I was a history major in college, ah! But we have as much historical evidence for that that we do that Jesus died on the cross, was killed, died on the cross, sent there by Pontius Pilate, and buried. And then we don't know where his grave is. We don't know where he is. Now, if you turn on the History Channel, when they start talking about this aspect of Jesus being raised from the dead, and what your teacher will say, because this is what was told to me when I was a freshman in college, is that a, a big theory that they'll give is, is that maybe he didn't die and that he woke up three days later and walked out of the grave. Now, I just want to talk about how silly this is for a second. Think about this. When Jesus was arrested, when we read through the narrative of what happened, 
He was beaten for almost 12 hours. He was first beaten in the Sanhedrin where they would punch him, and they would punch him and beat him anytime they talked. Then he was beaten by Roman soldiers when they were saying, prophesy, tell us who beat you. And then after they beat him like that, they took the cat of nine tails and they slapped it on his back. If you don't know what that is, it's a whip that has several leather strips on it. And the end of those strips were pieces of metal, all right, and pieces of, of, of glass and rock, and they would slap it on your back and then they would drag it down your back. And they would only give you 39 whips because they believed the 40th one would kill you for sure. And when historians talk about this massive beating that you would take, is that regularly you would see the organs of people hanging outside because their back would turn to ribbons. So this happens to Jesus, and then they march him up the hill to bring him to executioners that day in and day out, their job is killing people by way of crucifixion in which they don't take little finishing nails, but they take nails that are about the width of a nickel, and they put it in your wrists and in your legs, right in your ankles, actually, pinning you to a piece of, pinning you to a piece of lumber, and you would stand like this. And in standing like that, how you would die is that you would slump down like this, and your lungs would begin to fill with fluid, so you could not breathe. And the only way you could breathe would be to press your legs up like this, take a breath by pulling up on your arms and pushing on the nails until it was too painful because it ran down all your nerves that you would fall back down and you'd go up and down, up and down until you passed out from the pain or were too weak to push up again and you would suffocate in your own bodily fluids. Now, this is what crucifixion is. It's not a Christian thing. This is a Roman thing. We know this to be true outside of Scripture. And then what they would do is, if they found you dead, and this is what happened to Jesus, is they would take a spear and they would stick it underneath your ribs, bursting your lungs and your heart, and then water and blood would come out, biologically proving that you are dead. I don't know if there's any hunters in this area, but I've shot lots of deer in the heart with arrows. They don't make it far and they don't make it long, ever. And so what you will hear from your Religion 101 teacher are from the History Channel, because I've heard this stuff said in both areas, is that, oh, oh, and by the way, after that, Jesus was then wrapped, almost not mummified, but wrapped tightly with, with spices on him to hide the smell, and then he was put into a tomb, a rock was rolled in front of it, and then Roman soldiers were placed there in front of it, and if any of them fell asleep on guard, the one that fell asleep, they would start a fire, throw him in it, and all of his buddies for letting him sleep, and they would burn to death right there if anybody got in or passed them. That's how it rolled in the Roman army. And so the History Channel, Religion 101, will tell you that after that horrendous beating, that horrific death, that three days later, not eating, drinking, or being cared for, wrapped up like a mummy, that Jesus just woke up, unwrapped himself, pushed across a giant stone, and then walked seven miles to go hang out with somebody. Guys, have you ever like broken your toe and tried to walk? I dare you to go step on a nail. I'm sure they're around here. This place is crazy. And just walk back to your school. You're not gonna make it. 
You're going to make it down the street. You're going to be sitting there crying, calling somebody and saying, this is as far as I can go. So when I see this right here, it just laughs. It just makes me realize how ridiculous any other explanation of Jesus other than he's God. Because what other explanation is there? Because you can go through 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul will say, we delivered to you of first importance that Christ died, that Christ died according to the scriptures that he was buried and he rose three days later. And then he went on the list names of people that saw them and said hundreds have seen him too. He's basically saying, go talk to them. They will say they saw him as well. And then all of the disciples were martyred in terrible ways because they would not confess that Jesus did not raise from the dead. It almost takes more belief. It does take more belief to not see Jesus for who he is than to accept him as God. You will have to do more mental gymnastics in your mind to dismiss him as like a mass hallucination than you'll have to do to just accept that God did a miracle. Unpark the bus. Let's keep going, all right? Verse 17, and he said to them, remember, they're not recognizing him. He said to him, what is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Cleopas answered them, saying, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God, all of, and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But he, we had hoped that he was, the, he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Leave it to men not to trust women, right, ladies? But him they did not see. Write this down, and I'm going to explain it. We settle for far too small a picture of Jesus. We settle for far too small a picture of Jesus. These disciples, when Jesus finds them, what mood are they in? They're disheartened. They're so disheartened that when Jesus asks them, like, hey, what are, you, what are you guys talking about? They have that moment, maybe you've experienced it when things are really bad, and people are like, hey, are you okay? And you're like, like, where do I even start? What do I even say? That's where they are. And they're sad because their dream, their picture for their life has been shattered. See, if you look at what these men say, what they say, the, the hope that was lost 
is not that Jesus was the Messiah to deal with their sins, but that Jesus was the Messiah to give Israel political freedom from Rome. Which seems like a big picture. It is a big picture. And guys, as you think about the picture of your life, a lot of those things are really big. But they're going to be dwarfed by God's plan for your life. See, these men, their plan for their life was, man, I am following the guy that is finally going to get us out from underneath the heel of the Romans, and we're going to live free as the people of Israel again. But their picture is small. Their picture is small. Why? Because they have a small picture of Jesus. Look at the passage. Who did they say he was? A man, a prophet, a person they hoped would do something for them. Guys, let me ask you a question. What is the thing that you beg God for? When you're quiet in your room, what is the thing that consumes your heart and your mind? And even more, what does that reveal or expose about what you think about God? See, these men really loved a picture that they had in their heart and mind, but it wasn't the picture that God had. Like, God never freed the Jews from the Romans. The Roman Empire just dissipated, and new people came in. Let me tell you something. God may not give you that picture in your mind or in your heart. But he's got a better one. Because here's the reality. He's too big for that picture. And you'll worship too small of a God. If Jesus would have came and just been a political freer, like like freedom fighter, and taken over the Romans, how many generations would that have lasted? For them, it would have been one lifetime. Guys, God's plan for your life is bigger than your lifetime. If it isn't if, if the plan that, that you have for your life, the big objective that you're chasing after doesn't last a millennial, it's too short. Look at Jesus' response to them. And 25, and he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village to which they were going. And Jesus, he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly to stay, saying, stay with us, for it is toward the evening and the day is now spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, 
Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked about to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? Guys, if you embrace the picture that God has for your life, the story that God has for your life, your heart will ignite just like these men. Too often we look at Christianity as just being some boring thing where you keep rules and you listen to a guy talk for 30, 35 minutes and then you sing some songs. God's picture for our life, for, our, for the kingdom that he has, creates such a stir in his followers that get it that it's as if like there's this never-ending fire that happens there. And what Jesus says to them at the beginning is, is what he should say to some of us. What did he say to them? He said, you're foolish, that you're slow of heart to believe. It sounds mean, but it's not. To be foolish in a Jewish term means to like not grasp the truth of the Bible. And have they not been foolish? They were Jews. They've grown up reading and waiting and thinking about the Messiah, remembering passages like, like Isaiah 53, 5, 6, which, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah that says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that had brought us peace. And this is his wounds, we are healed. We, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us our own way. And the Lord has laid on him him, the iniquities of us all. Do you realize this, that as he poured through the scriptures for these people, he was pouring through a narrative that have happened for hundreds and thousands of years that was pointing towards the Messiah. And when you look at just the last day of Jesus's life, you know how many prophecies about the Messiah he accomplished. Many of them outside of his capacity. All of these things written hundreds of years before. The one I just wrote was written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus and crucifixion wasn't a thing. But if you read Isaiah 53, you're gonna be like, that's crucifixion. That's the Messiah. That lines up everything that we talk about in the New Testament. They were foolish because they were taught that as they were young. They were foolish because they were with Jesus and they saw the miracles and the things that he did. They were slow to believe with their hearts because there was so much evidence put before them. Guys, I just need to be honest with you. The lacking of my belief and faith is not because of evidence, but it's because of my foolishness. Some of us, God is saying the very same thing to us, that you have been coming to Salt Company for an entire semester and you've seen God transform your friends' lives. You've met people that have transformed lives and you can't explain it. And God has been poking at your hearts and prodding at it with the Holy Spirit. And at some point, when are you gonna say enough is enough? I can't hold him at arm's length anymore. I can't try to explain him as a man anymore. I can't just say he's a good person anymore. At what point? 
See, because what I think Jesus is doing with these men as he pours open the scriptures, he's sharing how God's redemptive plan will come to a point that we see in Revelation 21. Now, Revelation 21 isn't written by this moment that Jesus has this encounter, but it's pointing toward the coming kingdom of God. And I want to read it for you. In fact, I'd love for you to read it with me. If you could turn to the last book in the Bible, it's chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. I want you to see it with your eyes as I read it out loud. This is the picture of what is coming. This is a picture that is much greater than whatever picture you could have for your life. And here it is. John is in the presence of heaven seeing God and God has has pulled back the veil so that he could see what is coming. And this is what he has seen. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorning for her husband. All right, lots of language about old things passing away and new things coming. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write these things down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to him, it is done. I am alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from a spring of water of life without payment. Guys, does your heart not burn for a place like this? Does your heart not burn for a place like this where you're not only away from the the penalty of sin, but the presence of it? Does your heart not burn for a place where there is no cancer? Where children aren't victimized? Where people aren't sold into slavery? Where murder isn't a regular day happening? See, the promise, the plan, the picture of God is not that he would just make a country free for a moment, but he would make humanity free from sin. That there would be a moment, guys, where, you'd, where, where pain and death and life, it would be like it never happened. Think about all the pains in your life. What Jesus come to, came to accomplish on the cross was, yes, to bring you to this place. Where the depth and sorrow that you've experienced here is no more because you are in the presence of God and you are with the people of God. And you are in a place of heaven, which isn't, by the way, a, a, a cloud where you play some stupid harp. But you're part of a kingdom and a new earth and a new heaven that is perfect and not broken and destroyed. See, the picture that God has for you that's bigger than the picture you could ever have for yourself is not to free you from temporary things that are in front of you that inconvenience your life or make it harder, but to free you from the oppression of sin and to be a part of that kingdom and helping people come in to the light and kingdom of God. That is a much better picture than anything I could have imagined. 
That is a much better picture than anything you could have planned for yourself. And God is beckoning you to be a part of it. And some of you guys are sitting here and you still haven't entered into the family because you feel like you still got to do something. You feel like, yeah, God got you a good start. God did 95% of the work, but I got to do 5%. Your picture of Jesus is too small. And your picture of your sin is too small. You have offended an eternal God. And as of eternal consequence, and you are a finite being and you need an eternal being to act on your behalf. It is only by the work of God that any of us get to this place. Guys, we can't even build it here in a city. How are we going to build it for humanity? Only Christ can. So if God's been beckoning your heart, respond. Respond. And if you're a follower in this room, I cannot beckon you enough. I cannot beg you enough to open your hands and say, God, what is your plan for me? Maybe it's to spend a summer in somewhere else telling people about a kingdom that they have not heard about and they will not hear about unless someone comes and tells them. Maybe it's going back to a dorm room tonight and having a conversation with a roommate. I don't know what it is for you. But I know that the Holy Spirit does, and I know that he's praying at your heart right now. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for these men and women. What a joy it is to read your word, to talk about how your picture is better than ours. And God, I ask that you would give these men and women a vision for the gospel, a vision that is, comes from you. Uh, God, my, my mind, my heart, my brain, it's just, it's just too small to do it. Uh, Lord, it's not about Mercy Hill. It's not about salt. It's about your kingdom. And Lord, help us see where we fit into that. Help us see that you're beckoning us to that. God, I ask that we would live forever different because of it. Uh, Lord, please, 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 not let this just be a great talk, but let it be a catalytic moment for someone in this room. Lord, I, I know that there's someone right now in this room that, that, that feels like I just need to do a little bit more. Can they just throw aside that lie right now and just accept that you've done it all? So that when they stand before their creator, they know I'm, I'm, I will enter into the kingdom of God, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And I fully trust that. It's such a burden to try to add to the work of Christ because we can't. It's exhausting. Lord, remove that burden from their heart right now so that they would walk free, free to love you, free to be your son or daughter. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. Amen.